all my dudes and dudettes and doodlers and doodies, yes, all dudes in between, welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 279, and today I want to kind of talk about a Bible passage that does mean a lot to me. I think it's used in probably misappropriated ways often in our society, and in fact, the very groups of people that use this Bible verse a lot, I think, are actually succumbing to the very warning that it has. Doesn't that sound provocative? Oh man, I hope it does to you, because it does to me. So, again, uh, my name is Matt Boswell, the host of the Everyday Missionary Podcast, and here, the mission is always to figure out how can we be better everyday missionaries in the lives that we are living. Right. So uh, I think part of that just is about our own personal ethic and our own personal sense of uh, focus and ambition to bring Jesus in very real life ways to the spaces of everyday life, right? Like you're trying to figure out how can I think and act like Jesus and all the stuff that comes my way? What would Jesus have me do when that thing happens? And I think what that requires then is frankly to go right back into the gospels and go, how did Jesus do business, right? Like I'm, I'm still a big advocate that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the centering point, the illustrative point that gives then the architecture to the rest of our understanding of the Bible. And certainly it gives architecture on how we are to take all those other pieces of the Bible and then drive it through the grid of what what would Jesus do in light of all of this? I want to apply all these things, but in light of Jesus, because in the book of Hebrews, it says, you know, God's spoken through the prophets and all these different dudes in latter times, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And so in that sense, Jesus becomes the ultimate filter, the lens by which we evaluate life and live. So, you know, when I go, how should I live? What should I do? I don't go, well, how can I live like Moses or Elijah or simply like Paul or Peter, though they're very, very inspiring. But I think about Paul when he says, hey, man, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like his whole goal was, I wanted to be like, if I'm not imitating Christ, don't imitate me. But if I'm imitating Christ, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which tells me Christ then is the center point of everything. And he is again, the grid by which we assess all the decisions that we make, our actions and reactions. All right. And when you go and look at that, then you start to easily see how did Jesus respond to people? Well, to uh, kind of more toxic, uh, more self-righteous, Religious-y type people, he was pretty hard on, right? To people who were messy and messed up and had all kinds of stuff in life, he was really, really gracious and gentle too. And he even says like, hey man, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'm going to give you rest because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You're going to find rest when you come to me. And that's why I think so many people that were broken were so attracted to Jesus. It's why is the the only truly perfect holy person who ever walked the planet was attractive for disbelieving, disenfranchised people. You know, like that should like just beg a big question. Like what is it that Jesus did that was then so radically attractive for those people that they wanted to hang with them and eat with them and everything else? And and again, you know, like they knew their messy lives and they knew in a culture that judged them all for their messy lives that a religious leader or a spiritual man should have been all the more condemning of them. 
but he appears to have kind of done an opposite thing. He made them feel safe and wanted and cared for. And then I believe it was in that context that then people were moved to confessing their sin, following Jesus, and in that being truly transformed people because they weren't bludgeoned or guilted or shamed into a repentant type space, but they were moved and wooed into that space because of the infectious love and care and investment of Jesus. And so this is why I do think things like the Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain and the Fruit of the Spirit and the definition of love, the stuff I bang on the podcast all the time, play the most most important mammoth role in the tone setting of gospel work. Like if that isn't the tone that is established, the radical love of a person because I love God so much, because I certainly believe the greatest commandment uh, when he says, love God, love people, the way we prove that we love God is by loving people. And if we don't love people well, it shows we don't really love God like we think. It's platitudes, it's words, it's sappy speech, um, but the real boots on the ground proof of God, I love you so much, I am willing to love the unlovely. I'm willing to go the extra mile for the unlovely. I am willing to not judge the unlovely, like all that stuff that's there. I'm willing to go to others when there's something broken and I think they're unlovely, but I don't want to be unlovely to them. So I'm going to go and I'm going to make it right. All of that kind of stuff that's in there, right? Or caring for the poor with alms in chapter six, you know, like all that stuff that's in the Sermon on the Mount to me is again, the ways that we are bringing Jesus to the pavement of life. And so they're not, things to be stitched on pillows and bumper stickers and coffee mugs and, you know, nice little bookmarks that we use within our Bibles and everything else. They are marching orders to be lived out, right? So, so when you think about how Jesus did stuff, that's how we're supposed to do stuff. And, and therefore, uh, from that, hopefully then people go like, oh yeah, this is a real thing. This isn't just another religion with a bunch of rules. They follow somebody who's truly transformed their life, made them into truly the salt and light of the earth. And I see their good works and I'm, I'm, I can't help but want to glorify God in heaven because of their good works that I see. So when Jesus says that in Matthew chapter five, 13 to 16, that always alarms me to the fact that, oh yeah, what I should be emulating then in the world is not simply looking like Jesus, but that's going to look like salt and light. And people should then look and go, man, I'm going to glorify God in heaven because of how you live, what you say, what you do, how you act, the, the, again, the actions and reactions of your life, like all of that, I, I, I see something really, really good, beautiful and wholesome. And you're attributing that to this person, Jesus and what he's done for you. And I was giving you new life and everything else. And so, uh, it seems that for you, life is better with Jesus. And it seems that everywhere you go, you make life better for others because of Jesus. And man, I want to know this Jesus too. Like, I, I think that's just kind of my simplified crushing into a ball. I think that's what makes it drive. Now, I say all of that, right? Because what I am continuing to see pick up steam uh, within our shared Christianity in the United States is an increasing tone of hostility toward the world. Uh, instead of a tone of like when Jesus looks on the masses and he sees they're like a sheep, they're like sheep without a shepherd. It says he looks on them with compassion. Um, I, I, I'm watching and listening and reading more, more, more. And I'm actually seeing where uh, there are increasingly Christian leaders that are looking out on the masses. They're like a sheep without a shepherd. And instead of, conf instead of compassion, it's vilification. Um, and we need to fight now 
the sheep that are without a shepherd. We need to go to war. Like, we've decided they're all goats already. Like, only Jesus can separate sheep sheep and goats, but we've decided, uh uh-uh, they're all goats, and we're going to go to war against the goats. Because we're the sheep, they're the goats, we're going to go. Sheep are going to fight goats, um, forgetting the whole idea of what Jesus is up to here. Uh, Because what matters more is the moral architecture of our culture than the saving of people that are disenfranchised from God or disbelieving or, um, you know, deconstructed or, you know, just simply have never come around, whatever it is, right? Like, like we go, no, we, we've got to actually stand against and resist and fight and demonize as opposed to evangelize, right? That that's what I see happening more and more. And I, I say this because uh, last week I was listening to a podcast. Mark Driscoll was on the Charlie Kirk I don't know what his podcast is called exactly. It might just be called the Charlie Kirk Podcast. Uh, Charlie Kirk runs Turning Point USA. It's a conservative, um, I don't know if I call it a think tank necessarily. It's just, it's certainly a, a hyper-conservative advocacy group for, you know, kind of the Christian right and right-wing politics and everything else. And so he had Driscoll on there. And one of the things he kind of talks about is he can't figure out why anybody would have any problem with Driscoll because he's one of the the best Bible teachers and godly men he knows, you know? Uh, and I'm like, maybe you don't know his history. But in the podcast, uh, you know, Mark was just kind of going to places that are like Mark Driscoll on steroids, right? And so it was the typical name calling and kind of subdividing out. You're only masculine if you're this way. Charlie Kirk joked about any pastor that doesn't do it like Mark is just a castrated eunuch. Um, you know, which is just like, I guess, I guess you you have no balls if you don't do it the way Mark Driscoll does it. You have no balls if you don't just come and fight culture all the time. Right. So I guess that's kind of what they're getting at in the podcast, you know, and, and yet I think that captures something that I'm seeing more broadly, which is there is a, a rising voice of whether it be like um, Sean Foyt. Uh, or it is certainly Mark Driscoll, or uh, certain kind of segments of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, or just kind of some of the communicators of just radical anti-wokeness, whatever it is, there is this this rising tide of voices and churches and Christians that are are displaying uh, not only real hostility to the world and real belittlement of anybody that doesn't see things as they see them, But in this, I'm seeing a lot of Christians that are loving it, right? That they are loving this. That's right. We got to fight. We got to belittle. We got to mock them. They mock us as Christians. They persecute us as Christians. They hate us Christians. They want to cancel us as Christians. So we're going to cancel them. We're going to fight them. We're going to hate them. We're going to go after them. And they're, they're just loving the fervor and the fire and the anger and the pointing and the everything else, you know? And at the core of this is this Christian nationalism that we've talked about on the podcast. Like historically, I haven't talked about it as much lately. I did in the last podcast just because it was pertinent to the topic at hand. Um, but this rising kind of Christian nationalism that says we have to go after all of these social agendas uh, and we don't care about whether they not that they don't care if people get saved, but they frankly don't care if all the other stuff gets in the way, right? So as long as we're pushing all of this kind of cultural, moral, right-wing agenda, and maybe we look angry, maybe we look hostile, maybe we look judgmental, but frankly, we don't care because what is at stake is kind of the survival of the republic against this far-left thing, right? And so with that, 
um, there is this rising group of teachers, or what I'm even seeing is teachers that used to be pretty level now starting to dip their toe into the water of this kind of rhetoric-based thing. And frankly, here's why I, I, I think this is happening. I think it's twofold. Like, I think one, some people actually just really believe it. I think that's probably true. You know, I think it's wrong and flawed and very anti-Christ, but they just believe it. Um, I think others, though, especially leaders I'm seeing, is they're realizing there is money and praise to be found in going down that road, right? And so, uh, you know, it was funny. I, I, I know of a youth evangelist that was always just super chill. I would have said just kind of knew that the main things were the main things. Like kids coming to know Jesus is what matters, right? Uh, and then I've, I've kind of watched them over the last 18 months kind of go through this morph and uh, you know, I know that going through COVID was tough because there wasn't a lot of Christian camps to do. And so I think financially it was a little hard on that person and everything else. Uh, and so digging out of that, I'm sure was a challenge, but then they started going down this road of what I'm going to just call anti-wokeness. And, and I'm using that term. I know it has its own kind of loaded stuff in it or whatever else, but like, there's just these hot topic points, right? So race issues, LGBTQ issues, uh, public school board and books issues, uh, you know, just there's kind of those things that it's like, those are the easy, low hanging fruit to go to war with kind of thing. And so this individual is now really doubling down on messaging, like, let me do your camp and I'll make sure your kids don't become woke kind of thing. And their, their schedule skyrocketed, right? Like they're getting gigs all over the place. And I'm like, I thought it used to be, Hey, send me to your kid's camp and I'll introduce them to Jesus. Now it's send me to your kid's camp and I'll make sure they don't become woke, you know? And, and, and I, I get though, why then people go, yes, yes, yes. Right. Because there's so much of the echo chamber out there that says every school in the country wants to liberalize and degenderify, which maybe I just made up a word, degenderify your kid. And so, uh, we, we need you to come and make sure our kids don't fall into the pathogen of this stuff. And so he's getting gigs all over the place, right? In, in ways that he didn't get them before. Mark Driscoll, again, was kind of shunned and ostracized by much of Christianity for the things that he did that he never repented of. But now he's rolling in harsh, hot, funny. I mean, he's funny, he's quick, he's clever, he's witty and cruel. He's just cruel. And man, his Twitter slash X following is just skyrocketing right now. Skyrocketing. Right. Uh, or uh, there's a guy, uh, Owen Strahan, who is kind of a fiery guy, kind of known for his anti-wokeness within Christian circles. Um, but even he now is going, whoa, this is getting too out of control because now what is invited into the church is a lot of kind of white nationalism and xenophobia and uh, kind of monoethnic Christianity. It's, it's coming in with this whole thing. And people are eating it up, though, because these people that are fundamentally racists uh, are saying the stuff that people want to hear. And because they're doing that, they're they're just blending in more and more to the Christian community and seeding in there kind of this white nationalism along with the high anti-woke rhetoric all kind of busted in there together. Uh, and so it's a toxin to the context of the church. In fact, I even heard recently of a Bible college president 
that said, you know what you need to do? You need to vote your paycheck. And what he means by that is, let's just be honest, man. The only way we're going to survive is that we go hard right. And the only way our, our institution is going to survive is that we pander to those ideas and we kind of start sounding anti-woke ourselves because then parents are going to send their kids to our institution and maybe we can dig out of the hole that we're in, right? So again, what the problem is with all of this is it's always easier to sound hateful than loving. It's always easier to be mad than to be kind. It's always easier to vilify and demonize as opposed to evangelize, right? Like that, it's just always easier to do that. And when everybody's hearing their little versions in the media of just how bad everything is and how we should be very afraid of the other side, they're going to throw time and energy and money in that direction. And in that, the vision and heart and, and kingdom of Jesus loses, Every time this happens, the kingdom of Jesus loses because what people begin to do is say, Jesus's way won't work. Like you just don't get it, man. You cannot turn the other cheek and win a cultural battle. You can't. Even though the early church within 350 years did that very thing specifically because they turned the other cheek and went the extra mile and loved their enemy and didn't judge their enemy, but actually cared for their enemy. And they knew that, hey man, mercy triumphs over judgment. Like they really bought into Jesus. They did. That's you know, when people talk to me about like evangelism and stuff, I'm like, I, I don't know how to break it to you, but just simply saying, we're just going to shout the gospel and that's all that we need. I go, you can shout it all you want, but if you're not living it in love and generosity and gentleness, nobody wants it. I've seen dudes on the street corner with a blowhorn. Nobody wants it. Right. Um, but the early church, man, they just, they just endured under patience. Uh, and they knew that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. They just believe that. And they loved their enemies unto death. And from that, eventually their enemies became Jesus followers, right? And then within a couple hundred years after that, what happened? Christianity got power, and it got voice, and it got wealth, and it got the sword, and it became nationalists, you know? And it corrupted everything. For the longest time, it corrupted everything. I'm like, I think we're on a similar path and we don't watch out. So what does that have to do with then the passage I wanted to talk about today? You know, this idea that I'm seeing more and more Teachers teaching to that position, uh, they're getting much more elevation, money, kind of platform to do it. Uh, why is that happening? All right, this is my theory. Second Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 2. He says to Timothy, this is Paul, he says, Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. A couple of things there. First of all, um, yes, correct, rebuke, encourage. All of that is in there. Some of that is, you know, again, just adjusting the the angle. Some of that is saying stop doing this. Others is saying start doing that. Right. I think that's correct, rebuke, and encourage. But it's your people, right? And I see some of what's going on in these ranks is it's it's lecturing the outside world about how they're not following the word as as opposed to telling our inside people, hey, this is how you're not following the word. I think in particular to being like Jesus, right? It's like when you get these people rising up and they're just vilifying liberals or the left or whatever, what that is also then doing kind of to the insiders is saying, but you guys got all figured out. You're solid. You're good. In fact, we're all on the same team. We're the, the white hats and they're the black hats. We're right, they're wrong. We're sheep, they're goats, right? And so then it becomes toxic inside. They're not really being like or doing the way of Jesus, but they think by being angry, they are. By being kind of put out at their world, they're being as Christ-like as they can be. In fact, the more angry they are at a lost world, the more Christ-like they are. I think that's incredibly broken thinking and completely flipping what the whole gospel intention is all about, but I think that's what's happening, right? 
Now, in this, he says patiently. And when I hear some of these communicators and some of kind of the rhetoric, I would not put patience in the category of what they're doing, right? I think it's maybe even the opposite of patience. I think it's it's aggressive and it's right now-ish and it's bludgeoning, right? And so as much as the left can shame and cancel and want to destroy, I, I'm seeing it in quadrants of the right church as well. And again, for the disbelieving world, doesn't throw me off at all. Like I go fully get it. What other tools do you got to go off of? What is the higher purpose for which you are contending? Our higher purpose is this dude named Jesus that said, oh, let me tell you, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, right? Like, like, like he's, he tells us so often, like, man, you got to be least to be greatest, right? You want to be first, you got to be last. You want to gain your life, you got to lose your life. You know, so, so again, like he, like to the point of like broken record, like he tells us what to do. And I think that's the hard part, right? So anyway, I look at this and I go, okay, that's what Timothy's supposed to do. Preach this word, be prepared, do it patiently. Make sure you're again, kind of course correcting, warning and inspiring all at the same time, right? Your people with good teaching. Why does he say this? He says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to or admit sound and wholesome doctrine, which that idea, they kind of combined as a single rooted word there, which literally we get the word hygiene from. So they will, um, they will not admit hygienic truth. They, they won't admit stuff that is actually healthy and wholesome to their lives, right? Uh, they're not going to accept that kind of teaching. They will follow their own desires, their eagerness about something, and they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear, and they will reject the truth and chase after myths. Now, when I look at this, I think so often people use this to go, oh, see, it's going to be false teachers. And I go, yes, but false teachers come in a lot of shapes and sizes. And the current uh, let's go fight the woke world and vilify them in the process. And people are loving it and eating it up and following these guys hard. And those churches are growing. I go, yeah, because you're tickling their ears with what they want to hear. They want to know that they're better people than those other people and that their political views are valid religious views. And then people stoke that stuff. And then they go, thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep tickling with my ears, with my angry, I want my way stuff that I want to hear. And keep reminding me of how those people are the problem. Those people are the blight on society. Those people are the ones that, frankly, if they all died tomorrow and went to hell, good for them. They deserve it. Like, there is just that tone. And sometimes those very words that are in there, you know? Like, like I remember, I, I think I shared on the podcast recently about a pastor in Spokane. I was sharing about if you're the parent of a transgender youth and you help them transition, you should be shot in the back of the head and strung up on a local bridge for the rest of the community to see that we don't put up with this here, you know? And I'm like, for any Christian pastor to say, you should be shot in the back of the head and strung up is not a Christian pastor. They're a mosaic pastor. Sure. You're preaching Moses hard, man. I got you, but you're not a Christian pastor, you know, but that video's got millions of views. Now, I think of the millions of views, a lot of them are horrified, but I think of the millions of views, there's a lot of sympathy in there probably too, right? And and this goes back again to what's happening is people are wanting preachers. I mean, again, Driscoll's making the comeback because people want these preachers, uh, you know, or uh, I think it's Sean Fuke that's been traveling all over the country, you know, doing these worship sets. People are flocking to this and there's some things that the guy pushes and teaches and says where I'm like, that ain't Christ, man. That ain't Christ. But it's got a big, big following, right? Like on his first tour during COVID, he was telling people what they wanted to hear. 
And that guy made millions of dollars during that year. Millions of dollars. People are throwing money and bodies at this stuff like nobody's business. And I think it simply comes down to these guys are telling people what they want to hear and people are going to follow what they want to hear. And this is exactly what Paul is warning Timothy about. Like, dude, this is what they're going to do. They want to know they're better thans and those other people are less thans and they're going to eat it up. They want to know that they're always right and these other people are always wrong and they eat it up, right? He says, but you, you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Do not be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given to you, right? And I love this because what he's kind of saying is, and if you don't go down that road or you stand up against these kinds of things, you're probably going to get your butt kicked. And I have seen that uh, with pastors over the last couple of years where they would try to speak into the space and they lose people, they lose following, they lose funding, they lose jobs and everything else. It's kind of the funny thing that to be anti-woke in the Christian context is to probably secure your job. And in any way to say, hey, maybe we're going down a wrong road here is a good way to guarantee you may lose people or lose your job. And and I'm not talking about actually being woke. I just mean to raise even any specter of any of those things in there and say, hey, maybe we're looking at this differently. Hey, maybe this is wrong. Hey, maybe we're going down a nationalistic road that is not a gospel-centric road. Maybe we're doing this wrong. You're looking for trouble, man. In other words, there's no money to be had in being woke in Christianity. There is only vilification, right? But to be anti-woke in Christianity, oh man, that's job security, baby. That That's the road forward for some institutions, churches, and persons at this point. And I go, both woke and anti-woke ain't about kingdom stuff, right? So the fact that now this is now becoming the decider of we support or we, or we reject misses the fact that well, I thought it was the gospel in the kingdom. That matters. Now, to be perfectly clear, I look at the kingdom message and the kingdom temperament, and I say, well, it's going to make both sides pretty uncomfortable. Both sides will have to admit that they are going too far in their attitudes and vitriol on on many of the things that are happening, right? And so I think a kingdom way, a Jesus way, certainly is going to get beat up from both sides. But that's the idea. And what's happening now is both sides are wanting to ensure they don't get beat up, but they want to beat up the other side. And so, again, if you're a Christian that starts to slip toward a woke position, you're going to get throttled by the other Christians, but you'll be well embraced by the anti-religious woke camp. They'll embrace you for sure, right? And then you get to become angry at all of the anti-woke people, or you go anti-woke, and you're going to be totally embraced by a lot of people in that quadrant, a lot of which are now increasingly Christian and having this nationalistic idea about Christianity, and they're going to elevate you and give you platform and certainly give you money and everything else. And and But then you got to feed the beast, man. you got to keep feeding the beast. So you can't go into that. I'm going to stay within my own ranks. You can't go into that space and then kind of, you know, kind of gin up all of the the anger and anxiety and then at some point say, whoa, we've gone too far, everybody. We need to get back to loving our neighbors ourselves. They don't want to hear that. Then they'll deplatform you. They want to hear like, no, we actually can go and and really go after our neighbor now. You know, we can we can vandalize their stuff in their yard if we want. Or we can do whatever, you know, like like this is going to be the problem of these hyper kind of uh narrative ideas is there's no way to really pull back. Like once you're down that road, you have to kind of keep finding the next angry thing to keep anger churning. Because again, what gets people really going is either really exciting stuff or really angering stuff. And I think this is really angering stuff. And yet 
the angering stuff is the exciting stuff. You know, people love to say amen to a preacher who's saying something about the left that is bitey. They go, yeah, that's right. Amen. You know, because, you know, that's, I guess, apparently what Christianity looks like. Right. And I go, no, this is really what it comes down to is people want certain teachers that tickle their ears with their own anger and their own vilification of a a, a disbelieving and lost world. And the gospel suffers. I always go back to that. The gospel suffers because the gospel is, I believe I should say that the gospel should be spoken in a tone and the tone I believe is one of, I deeply care for you. And we can't say, I deeply care for them and their evil wickedness. Like, you know, like, cause that, that, that doesn't care. That's judgment. Knowing that your responsibility is to care, but you're busy being judgmental, too judgmental to care. Like that's going to always be that thing that I go like, yeah, we can't do with that. We have to do this different, you know, which is why then I'm such a big fan of just saying to everybody, please, 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 please just read your gospels, read your gospels often. I love the rest of the Bible. I do, right? Like one of my favorite books is out of the Old Testament, actually, right? I'm a Bible teacher, love to teach the Bible, right? But, but Jesus is the rope. Jesus is the thing. Like Jesus is the thing, you know? And, and I think when we do that and when we center on Jesus, we'll realize that what a lot of these rising teachers are doing and institutions are now chasing down, um, is I don't, I'm not saying they're not Christians, right? Like, Part of it is because everybody knows my door's wider when it comes to Christianity than most. You know, I don't get into this because I guess I believe we're actually saved by grace. I think too often we judge everybody by their works. And I'm like, yeah, then I think it's just reapplying works to grace. And now we're deciding it's grace and works that decides whether somebody's saved. I'm just like, I'm gonna let Jesus sort that out. Hey man, you claim the name of Christ. You believe that Jesus died, rose for you. You know, uh, you were a sinner. You're saved by his grace. Like, I'm just more simplified. I get it. Not everybody agrees with that. I'm just like, I'll let God sort that one out. So I'm not questioning any of these people's salvation. I'm just not. But I'm certainly questioning their application of what they're doing and how it looks nothing like Jesus. And we need to get back to doing Jesus-like stuff. So that's why I say everybody on the podcast, don't take my word for it. Go read the Gospels, right? Go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See how Jesus dealt with disbelieving people in a lost world. That's what I'd say. You could also see how he dealt with religious people in a religion-based world. He's hard on them, man, because they're doing what these guys are doing today. It's the same thing. Honestly, I go Pharisees and Christian nationalists and these guys that are just like churning the butter of anti-wokeness. It's all the same stuff. It's just the arrogance of religion, I think, uh, forgetting that all of our poop smells, like all of our poop smells. And the way that we are to go forward is not to go, but their poop smells worse, right? Um, But to say, oh, man, do you know how bad my poop smelled when Jesus rescued me? And I am so humbled by that, that I just want to love you until you are humbled by that same gospel that humbled me. Like that is the space that we should be in. And I think the more we're committed to that, the more we're saying, man, that's where I'm going to live. And that's where I'm going to dwell. Well, then the more we're going to be effective everyday missionaries.